Welcome to Present Value. Hey everyone, I'm Harrison Job, co-founder and executive producer of Present Value, along with Michael Brady, who's also the host for this episode. We have a great conversation for you featuring General George Casey Jr. Much of the conversation focuses on leadership, but we also discuss the complexity of the Iraq War, why much of the world today is VUCA, that is, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, and some funny anecdotes about his days working for Vince Lombardi. If you enjoyed the episode, check us out at presentvaluepodcast.com and subscribe, share, and leave us a review. And now here's our conversation with our host, Michael Brady, and General George Casey Jr. General George Casey is a distinguished senior lecturer of leadership here at Cornell. He spent 41 years in the U.S. Army, serving as the Army Chief of Staff from 2007 to 2011. Casey is widely credited with restoring balance to the war-weary U.S. Army and for leading the transformation to keep the Army relevant in the 21st century. In addition to his role as Chief of Staff, he has held multiple senior positions within the U.S. military, including Commander of the Multinational Force Iraq, Director of Strategic Plans and Policy, and Director to the Joint Staff. General Casey and his wife Sheila are strong advocates for America's military families, and during his time as Chief of Staff, he took on the tough issues of suicide and reducing the stigma attached to combat stress. He holds a bachelor's degree in international relations from Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and a master's degree in international relations from the University of Denver. Today, he sits on the board of advisors for Sarco's Robotics, is chairman of the United Service Organizations, also known as the USO, and is a director on the Georgetown University Board of Directors. General Casey, thank you for your 41 years of service, and thank you for joining us. It's truly an honor to have you here on Present Value. You're welcome, Mike. It's great to be here with you. When you reflect on your career, you've explained that you've climbed several rungs, encountered four forks, and have had some Irish luck. If you could walk us through your career and how you became the Army Chief of Staff. Sure. I'll try to make this not a 41-year answer. But uh, <laughs> it was interesting. After I did my class here at Cornell a couple of times, I got feedback from several of the students saying, you know, we really like to hear what a career in the Army is like. And so as I thought about it, and I said, well, you know, like any corporate ladder, there were eight different rungs of positions and commands that I strived for. But along the way, I had about four different forks in the road where I could have gone one way or could have gone another for a variety of reasons. And one of the points that I try to make with the students is that nobody's career goes in a straight line, that everybody has ups and downs. And what's most important is that when you have a down, you learn from it and you come back and you come back stronger. So as I looked at my own career, as you said, 41 years, eight different rungs and and levels of command that I strove for, uh, but the forks. So as a as a young officer, maybe in my late 20s, I was commanding at the second rung on the ladder, which is company command, and I had about 100 soldiers under my command. And I got a call one day from my assignment officer in Washington saying, you've been selected to try out for a mission of the highest national priority. And I kind of knew what it was because they were just starting to form Delta Force. So I talked to my boss and said, hey, I've had this opportunity here. I'd like to at least go down and try out for it and see what it's about because I didn't know anything about it. And uh, 
He said, okay, I'll hold the command open for you because it was only going to be about two months at the max. So I, I went down to Fort Bragg, North Carolina and went through a, a selection process that was, <laughs> that was grueling. And as I went through it, I was talking to my wife about whether I should do this or not. And at that time, they wouldn't tell us what we were doing or, or anything. And, and it was going to be a significant impact on the family. And I started to realize that I was more of a conventional person than a special operations type person. And so after going through the selection process, I decided that this really wasn't for me. And it's the first fork. I always look back on that and say, how could my career have been different if I had taken that fork and gone in the other direction? But I didn't. I just put my head down and got back on the track and kept on going. So that was really the first one. And what's interesting about it, fast forward 40 years or 30 years, and my immediate predecessor as Army Chief of Staff was in that selection course with me. And uh, he took a different fork. Yeah, but we both got to the same place. The second fork was after I'd been in the Army for about eight years. And I'd stayed consciously stayed at the lowest levels of the Army so I could learn how the Army worked. I mean, I needed to feel comfortable that I knew how to do things at the lowest level. But it was a peacetime Army by then because Vietnam was over, and there was a lot of make-work stuff. And we focused a lot on what I considered not important stuff like training and tactical training, things like that. And so I was a little frustrated, and I was asking myself, is this all there is? And just as I was thinking about maybe it was time to get out and try something else, I got a call from, again, the guy in Washington who's covering your assignments, and he says, how about fully funded graduate school? And I said, well, that sounds interesting. And they wanted to send me to graduate school in international relations because I was going to be a foreign area officer, and so I went off and did that. That really started me on a three-year, what I call a broadening period, where I did things outside of the Army that broadened my perspective because I went right from 18 months of graduate school to a joint staff college, and then I went off to work for the United Nations in Egypt for a year. At the time, I was a little nervous because I was outside of the mainstream, but looking back, it was usually broadening. Two more quick forks. There was a point uh, as a colonel, so now I've been in the Army probably close to 30 years, and I, I'm passed over for uh, a level of command. And I started saying, okay, well, if that's it, then I'm not going to be selected for that rung on the ladder, then I'm done. So I, I actually had put down a deposit at an executive MBA program at George Washington University. I mean, that's how done I thought I was. And then out of the blue, I get a call from a two-star general who I had never met. And he said, would you like to come down and be my division chief of staff, which is a very important job and one that had a very good advancement potential. So I said, well, yeah, of course. So I went down and I, I had a 20-minute interview with this wonderful gentleman I'd never met. And a month later, he called me and said, come down and be my chief. And I said, I'm there. And after that, I was selected for that colonel-level command. I was selected for brigadier general, and it just, just really went on from there. And then the last one, and I'm sorry this went on so long, but it was 41 years. No, <laughs> the, uh, the last one, I, I was selected for two-star command. And there's only 10 combat division two-star commands in the Army. So there is an assumption that if you're selected for one of those 10, you're going to be one of the 40 or so Army three-star generals. And you expect that you'll go right from that two-star command into one of those three-star jobs. 
So toward the end of my command, and I thought I had done a good job. I was preparing people to go to Kosovo, and we had two rotations of that. And I thought I'd done a pretty good job. And the chief of staff of the Army comes over, and he puts his arm around me and takes me off to the side and says, you're not going to a three-star job out of here. And, you know, I was crushed. I thought I had failed or done something wrong. And uh, he says, it's timing. And what he meant was there's no jobs that require your skills, which are primary international relations things, that are open right now. And, of course, I said, yeah, right, you know. And so I pouted for a couple of days, and then I got back on track and went forward. Well, as when I became the Army Chief of Staff, I really found out it was all about timing <laughs> when, you're, when you're picking uh, two stars to be three stars. But anyway, I, I went to the two-star job. It was down in North Carolina, and I was there 100 days before September 11th happened, and I got moved up to be the Director of Strategy and Policy on the Joint Staff, and, which was a three-star billet. So things happened, and they, and they worked out. So as I said... Eight rungs on the ladder, four different forks in the road, and a little Irish luck. The Irish luck was this general coming up and saying, okay, be my chief of staff. So those kinds of things. And for me, that's the way careers go. As I said, nobody advances in a straight line. Everybody has their ups and downs. The important thing is you learn from the downs and move forward. It's ironic you're considering leaving for... George Washington University to go get your MBA, and now you're here at Cornell teaching MBA students. Can you share with our listeners how you came to teach at Cornell? Sure. It actually started with the veterans group here at Johnson. They emailed me one day, and five years ago, actually, and said, uh, would you come up and give a Veterans Day talk to us here at Johnson? And while you're here, we'd like you to address the school, the, the Johnson School of Management, on leadership. And, and so I did both of those things. And while I was here, the dean said, you know, would you think about coming back up here to Cornell and teaching leadership to our second-year MBAs? And I said, well, you know, dean, I'm, I'm just retired here, and I'm really not ready to move to Ithaca and, and teach for a semester. He said, well, how about a couple of weeks? You know, do a one-credit course. And I was already doing that at my alma mater, University of Denver, but I was doing it in international relations. So I said, I'll, I'll give that a try. And we put together something, and I started coming back here in the fall of 2014. And I've been teaching up here ever since, and I thoroughly enjoy it. Sounds like they gave you a sweet deal. It was a deal. (laughs) It didn't take much. Actually, it didn't take much. Much of our conversation is going to focus on leadership. But before we get there, can you briefly take me and our listeners back to the beginnings of the Iraq War? Maybe scope out the magnitude of the conflict and then explain the state of the conflict as you became Army Chief of Staff. Yeah. So, I mean, it really starts even before that because on September 11th, the United States military was thrust into a fundamentally different environment than we'd been preparing for for the last really 50 years uh, since the end of, end of World War II. And we, we were a very good 20th century army, but we at that time, had to transform ourselves into a very good 21st century army while we were prosecuting the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was a very significant degree of difficulty to do both at the same time, but was something that we all felt that we had to do. As I went into Iraq myself in 2004, it was the most complex environment that I'd ever seen before or since. And I had about six weeks from the time that I was told I was going to Iraq to the time I actually took over in Iraq. And so I spent a lot of time boning up and trying to build my understanding of the environment and the history. 
and talking to people within Washington and within the intelligence community to get a sense of how they saw the situation and, and, and what was going on. But if you think of it, we had a, at that time about 160,000 troops from 33 different countries, all operating in an environment that we really hadn't operated in since, for the American military, Vietnam. The British military had, had worked in Northern Ireland, but the rest really hadn't done anything with counterinsurgency in, in years. And by that time, there were very few people left in the American military that had served in Vietnam and had any level of experience. So we were, we were learning on the fly. And as I, as I watched the impact of the environment on myself and on my subordinate leaders, what I saw was that it, it impacted them in a way that I realized we hadn't really prepared them to lead in these 21st century environments that we were operating in. And I thought about it a lot. And as I said, I saw the impacts uh, you know, on myself. And trying to get your arms around the complexity of all of these different actors. I mean, in, in Iraq, I had to consider in every decision I made what the U.S. government wanted, what the Iraqi government wanted, what the governments of the 33 countries of the coalition wanted, uh, what the various Iraqi factions wanted. And that was just the good guys. In war, the enemy has a vote. And, and it wasn't just good guys and bad guys. I mean, there were militias, criminals, insurgents, terrorists. It was a very, very complicated environment, both in the friendly and on the, on the enemy side. And we had to work our way through all that while we were coming to the grips with the situation on the ground ourselves. I feel like it is easy to underweight the complexity of the situation you entered into in Iraq. And you describe this in your book, Strategic Reflections, Operation Iraqi Freedom. Could you maybe compare and contrast Iraq with the Gulf War and how the conflict was different there? Oh, sure. The biggest difference in, in the Gulf War, we were fighting another army. And in the Iraq War, we were not fighting another army. In fact, I like, I'd like to say I spent 30 years of a 40-year career training to fight a war I never fought, and the last 10 learning to fight a different kind of war while I was fighting it. And, you know, I don't think that's just a military problem. I think our environment today in the public and private sectors is so turbulent and so unstable, and so so much change coming on every day, that it's the type of environment that we need to prepare people to lead in today. You teach a very popular graduate course here at Johnson called Leading in a Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and Ambiguous World, or Leading in a VUCA World. That's V-U-C-A. Can you elaborate on VUCA and why the state of the world today is newly volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous? Sure. I'll just tell you an interesting story about how I came to be reassociated with VUCA. Because uh, I got a call one day from the dean of the Keenan Flagler Business School at University of North Carolina right after I'd retired. She said, General. Don't run off there. Yeah. We need you here. <laughs> General, she said, please, can you come down and, and talk to our executive MBA program on leading in a VUCA world? And I said, sure, Dean, no problem. And I hung up and I immediately Googled VUCA. Well, much to my chagrin and amazement, I found out that it was a term coined by the United States Army War College in 1989 to describe what they thought the world would look like in the aftermath of the demise of the Soviet Union, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And I, I knew I'd heard the acronym before, but I couldn't rem remember what all the letters stood for. And as I thought back to my time in Iraq, and I thought back to my time in Bosnia in 96 and Kosovo in 2000, I realized that I had seen VUCA. 
what I'd seen is it only got more complicated. Kosovo was more complicated than Bosnia. Iraq was much more complicated than Kosovo. And so I started thinking about the impact of this environment on the leaders that I had seen in Iraq. As I mentioned before, I, I had already started thinking about that while I was in Iraq. And when I returned from Iraq, I revamped the general officer development program for our generals. And I focused them on leading and becoming better leaders at both the operational and primarily the strategic level of leadership, leadership at the top of, of big organizations. And I shared with them a lot of the lessons that I had learned in Iraq and as, as I continued to learn as, as Army Chief of Staff. And really those lessons, as I've thought about them and developed them over time, are the lessons that I pass on to the students here at, at Cornell. Maybe we can get into, in particular, why Iraq was volatile. Sure. When, when I start the class off, to give them a, an example and help them get a feel of what I mean by VUCA, I use the example of my first 30 days in Iraq because that was the most VUCA time that I have ever experienced before or since. As I said, I had about six weeks to prepare myself for it, and I got thrust into this environment. The ambassador and I were given about 30 days by the president to come up to get our feet on the ground, build our level of understanding, and come up with a plan for our success. And right in the middle of that process, as we're working to build our plan and build a relationship with an Iraqi government that was three days old, we never met. And right in the middle of doing that, we're thrust into a major countrywide battle because a young Marine who'd been on the ground for less than a week made a wrong turn, drove too close to a militia leader's house, a gunfight broke out that quickly spread around the holy city of Najaf, home to the Imamali Shrine and then across the southern part of the country. So something well outside of our control had impacted us at a very inopportune time, and that's volatility. And one of the things that I stress with the students is, okay, so what do you do about it? What's the impact of volatility on leaders, and what can you do about it? And for me, the impact of volatility is it diverts your focus. It pushes you away from doing the most important things that you need to do to succeed today. And really, when you put it all together, the whole VUCA environment bombards leaders and, and puts them on, their, on the defensive, on the back foot, so they can't move forward. I always talk to my folks about having an offensive mindset, focusing on your competition and being opportunistic. You're always out there scratching and clawing for the advantage. And, and I tell the students, remember the old adage, never waste a good crisis? Well, things are going to change, and the important thing is that something positive comes out of that change, that you don't let the change drive you onto your, as I said, onto your back foot, onto the defensive, and then you're constantly fighting to move the organization forward. I do that with uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, and we talk about all that. What's the impact on leaders, and what can you do about it? I find it really interesting that VUCA is not some general description of the world, but rather is a particular description of the world as it is today. So given that VUCA seems to color much of the dynamics in the world, including business, what does it take to lead today, and what advice do you give to leaders? So I say this in the last chapter of my book, which is specifically about the leadership implications of my time in Iraq. Leaders need to be men and women of vision, courage, and character, and they need to focus their precious intellectual and emotional energy 
on the areas that have the highest payoff for the organization, and I call those areas the focus areas. And that's developing vision and strategy, building high-performing teams, setting the internal and external conditions for success, and preparing for the future. Those are the four focus areas that I, that I drive home. So it's important because you need to have the right personal characteristics, but at the same time, you need to focus your energy in the areas, as I said, that have the highest payoff. Can you share what vision means to you? Sure. For me, vision is the ability to see around corners, to see something significant about the futures that other people just, you know, just don't see. And as I've thought about how you build vision, you know, I've, I've found for me, it's a product of my education. It's a product of my experience. And, and I, I tried to take on the, the hard jobs and to do different things to move me out of my comfort zone. So I was challenging myself and getting a higher level of experience. Those two things lead to intuition, which you build over time. Again, I can't reiterate this enough, but the whole environment competes to put you on the defensive. And if you're defensive, you're not going forward. And today, you have to go forward if you're going to be successful. When I hear that vision is a critical pillar for a successful leader or part of the three-legged leadership stool, which is vision, courage, and character, I worry that people will extend that to overvaluing the charismatic leader. How do you balance that? I'll actually help footnote that I do personally agree with the idea that vision is essential for good leadership. Sure. One of the things that I hear from the students all the time is they have this notion that a charismatic leader is going to be successful. And one of the things I try to stress to them is that developing a leadership style begins with a deep understanding of who you are. And because everybody's strengths and weaknesses are different. But in the military, we believe that anyone can become a better leader if they commit to the leadership journey. And as you're climbing those rungs on the ladder, what I found was that every time I got to a different rung, I had to evaluate my strengths and weaknesses. And I had to say, are the skills that brought me here going to take me to the next level? And usually I found out that I had to make a little bit adjustment, but it all begins with a, a very, very deep and candid assessment of who you are. In the class, we develop a list of leadership characteristics that they think are important to be successful as, as a leader today, and we talk about them. The class paper requires them to define what the three most important leadership characteristics they believe are most important for leaders to be effective today, and then what they need to work on. And so at the end, I go through all the papers, and over the last eight, eight classes or so, it's very interesting to me that in the top five are always vision, communications, empathy, and character. They're all in a different order, but those are the top four characteristics that these second-year MBAs think are most important for effective leadership today. Now, it's at the end of class, so they may be influenced <laughs> by what they get out of the class. But I, I thought those were very uh, interesting characteristics. I like the Eisenhower quote that you use in class. Plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Can you comment about why you share this quote with students? Sure. One of the things that I saw in Iraq and, and to some extent experienced myself was that when things are so volatile, they're changing all the time, that it's easy to get knocked on the defensive and say, why should I keep planning? Why bother? The plan is going to change. Why don't I just react? 
And I, I might have thought that that was just something in the military, but I actually was having a conversation uh, with uh, the CEO of a major U.S. multinational corporation, and in a moment of frustration, he said the same thing. He says, we're making all these plants, and they never turn out. And I always use the quote from Helmut von Molke. I said, there's no plan survives contact with the enemy. And I'm always amazed when we're amazed that the plan didn't work or, or the plan changed. It's going to change, right? I make everybody raise their right hand and say, hey, look, we can't predict the future, right? We're human. We just don't do that. So you have to understand that the plan is, is in fact, going to change. And you have to be able to deal with that. That's an excellent explanation of why vision is so important. Can you explain why courage is so important? It is. As I thought my way through this, when you are crafting a vision for your organization or deciding to point the way ahead for the organization, you're actually making judgments about the future. And, and because we're all human, we can't predict the future. And I think one of my favorite quotes is Yogi Berra. Predictions are hard, especially when you're talking about the future. It takes courage to act in the face of uncertainty and risk because you could be wrong. There could be significant consequences. And I believe that today, to succeed, you must act. And it takes courage to act. So I've asked myself, so, so how do you build courage? How do you build the courage to act in this swirl of VUCA that's around you every day, just bombarding you with different signals? And I thought about a quote that I got off of a Sun Tzu calendar somebody gave me. And it said, and I'm paraphrasing, enlightened leaders make decisions with a clear mind and a pure heart. And I found that if I built a deep understanding of the situation and the challenges facing us at that time, in my mind, I got to the point where I felt that I had done everything I could to get every bit of information that was relevant to this and that I had you know, worked that very hard, that it gave me the conviction to act. In the military, we say there are two kinds of plans, those that might work and those that won't work. And if I had a clear mind, if I'd really thought, did everything I could to understand the environment and to make the decision, I could do it with a clear mind. It gave me the conviction that the plan might work. And that gave me the courage to go forward. And in pure heart, I had to be able to look at myself in the mirror and say, I'm doing this and I'm making this decision and this judgment for the right reason. And when I could do those two things, I had the conviction to act in the face of all this swirl of uncertainty and risk. And then lastly, I just on character. For me, character is most important in the leader because the leader is the one who sets the example for the organization. One of my predecessors as Army Chief of Staff, Creighton Abrams, who was the lead tank battalion commander for Patton in the breakout of Bastogne, when he was Chief of Staff of the Army in, in the early 70s, he used to say, the higher up the flagpole you go, the more your butt hangs out. And what he meant by that was that the higher you go, the more people are watching you. And what I told my generals and I tell my students is, if you're not living the values that you're espousing, the only one that doesn't know it is you because everybody else sees you for the phony that you are. And in the class, I always spend the last hour and a half of the class talking about character and the importance of character. I have him read seven pages of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. I guess it's the Jesuit's Revenge because I had to do it back in the uh, when I was a freshman in college. And I must say, as I've read it and reread it and reread it in preparing for the course, 
it's striking to me how relevant he is writing 2,300 years ago. He says things like, it's hard to be good. And it's true because it's a constant challenge. We're challenged every day to act in an appropriate way. And he also says moral goodness, which I equate with character, is a function of habit, that you become a, a good person by habitually doing good things. Conversely, if you start cutting corners and taking the easy way out, you'll get on a slippery slope that will take you in, in the opposite direction. And that's what I found over the course of my career. I had decisions, ethical decisions, that for me at the time seemed absolutely monumental. And looking back, they uh, were insignificant. But I built over time the character to do the right things in difficult situations. And people's character doesn't get stretched until it's a difficult situation. We'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about your time working for Vince Lombardi. So for our younger listeners and non-NFL fans, Vince Lombardi was a legendary NFL coach who led the Packers to five championships in seven years in the 60s, including three in a row, which concluded in 1967. General Casey, can you share a story about Coach Lombardi's leadership style and also comment on how you saw him develop his team? Oh, sure. Uh, he also won the first two Super Bowls. The Super Bowl trophy is named after him, and, I, and that's when I talk to international students about this. They all know about the Super Bowl, and they all know about the Super Bowl trophy. Anyway, so we were not on camera here, but you'd see I, I obviously wasn't a professional football player, but I had, a, and I had a relatively insignificant job as an assistant equipment manager. But I got to watch him work, and he impacted me in a way that I really didn't fully appreciate until I got deeper and deeper into thinking about uh, my leadership style after I joined the Army. But what I took from him was his focus on a commitment to a common goal. He built that team around the, the commitment to winning. And he used to say, winning isn't everything, it's the, it's the only thing. And everybody on that Green Bay Packers team was committed to that. And to lead a successful team, you have to build that level of commitment to a common goal. That's fundamentally the first thing. Why I talk about vision and strategy being important, because that becomes the common goal that you focus the organization on. Second, he, had, he was committed to excellence. And he used to say, don't just try to be better than the other guy. Be better than everybody else. And that really stuck with me. And every organization I went into, I tried to make the organization the best that it could be at what we were doing. We didn't always succeed. But it's that striving for excellence that makes the difference. You have to reach high. And you're not always going to get it, but you'll come out better because you're reaching higher. And I found that I had to figure out, as I saw him do, you figure out what's most important to whatever it is you want to accomplish. And then you establish clear standards for attaining those most important things. And for him, it was blocking, tackling, and execution. And their, their best play was the power sweep. And they'd run it 12 or 1,300 times a season against every different kind of defense. And everybody knew what to do because of the discipline, repetition, and, and focus on, again, what they saw was most important. I guess the last thing I'd say about what I learned from him was he created an environment where every member of that team felt like they were an integral and contributing member. From the quarterback to the equipment manager. <laughs> Everybody felt like they were part of something really big. 
and I, I tried to set that same environment every place that I that I went. We hear a lot about giving feedback these days in MBA curriculums and in business. Uh, it's all around the literature. I know there's an interesting time where Vince Lombardi gave you some feedback. Would you mind sharing that with our <laughs> listeners? Oh, yeah. So again, I was about, I don't know, 18 or 19, and he was brought into the Redskins to turn them around like he turned the Green Bay Packers around. When he took over the Green Bay Packers, they had won one game the year before. And as you said, two years later, they won the first of five National Football League championships. So he was supposed to do the same thing for the Washington Redskins. So he came into the team and he was doing working his magic. But, you know, things don't happen overnight. So we went down to play the Detroit Lions in an exhibition game at Tampa. This was before Tampa had a football team. And we lost. We lost 10 to 7. And so the word came down that the coach wants all the press and everybody kept out of the uh, out of the locker room uh, until he's done talking to the talking to the team. So I was responsible for guarding the back door. Well, at 18 or 19, I was curious and I wanted to hear what the coach had to say to the team. So instead of standing on the outside of the door like I should have, I stood on the inside of the door. So the coach starts talking to the team, and he was chewing them out, and he was really working them over hard. And I'm going, ooh, wow, boy, this guy can really chew out. And all of a sudden, a policeman opened the door. I mean, it was open for a nanosecond before I closed it. And he stopped right in the middle of chewing out the team, turned to me and blasted me right in front of everybody, and then without missing a beat, went back to chewing out the team. Well, I mean, as I said, as a, as a kid, I was wasted. I mean, the man had just wasted me in front of the whole team. I was really low. So we get back on the plane and we're flying back to Washington. And now I look up and I see him coming down the aisle. And he's got this big toothy grin. And now he's smiling at everybody and he's patting them on the back and he's, he's building them back up. Well, I just know he's not going to build me back up. And so I start putting my face in my book and I'm reading and reading. And all of a sudden I hear this, heh, heh, heh. <laughs> and I look up, and there he is. He's staring down at me with his big grin on his face, and he says, kind of hard on you back there, wasn't I, son? <laughs> and he walked off. Now, that was nowhere near an apology, but the fact that the man had taken the time to, to save me, <laughs> to, to, to say, hey, just by talking to me, he's saying, you're not done, okay? You're still still on my team. I was on the t I was on cloud nine, and, and it was a great lesson for me. And, I, and after Throughout my career, any time I had to talk to someone about substandard behavior, I always left them with hope because I'll never, I'll never forget the feeling from that day. Vince Lombardi building up a lowly equipment manager exactly who would be right. future <laughs> Army Chief of Staff. <laughs> who else in your life would you say has helped to define your leadership style? You know, it's interesting. As I thought back through this, I had some very pronounced thoughts on leadership before I even entered the Army. And it really began with my grandfather. When I was about 12, he, he told me one day, he said, George, you're no better than anyone, and nobody's better than you. So treat everyone with respect, but don't take any guff from anybody. And it took me a while to, to realize the depth of, of what he was telling me then. But over time, it became the core of my leadership style, and I tried to do that that I tried to treat everybody that I was involved with with respect. But at the same time, I was 
very willing to go out and fight for what I thought was important for me and, and, and for my organization. And then my dad. Uh, my dad was a great athlete, was the captain of the West Point hockey team, very competitive, and he said, never be afraid to try to be the best. And again, that, it took me a while to understand the impact of that, but that led me to this focus on excellence that was also kindled under, under Lombardi. And, and I tried to make every organization I was in as good as it could possibly be. And so between my grandfather, my dad, and, and Vince Lombardi, I, I was off to a pretty good start when I entered the Army as a 22-year-old second lieutenant and uh, kind of grew from there. Let's loop back to the importance of everyone on a team feeling like they are an integral contributing member of the team. Can you tell us about a particular example where you did this as the Army Chief of Staff? Sure. One of the things that I, I found, not just when I was leading the Army, but at every level of command moving up to that, people needed to understand how they fit. And they needed to understand how what they were doing contributed to the success of the larger organization. And it's not intuitively obvious to them. I mean, especially down at the lower levels, there's some pretty scut work kind of stuff that has to go on. Move out to the Army level. Uh, as I went around the Army, you know, the Army's a huge organization of 1.1 million people in about 160 bases all across the world. And we have everything from depots that refurbish vehicles to the VEP depots that make weapons to big warehouses and things. I mean, it's a huge business. And what I found was when I would go out and, and visit some of these depots, like I, would, I visited the Red River Army Depot, which is right at the, on the Red River that divides Texas and Arkansas. So it's really out in the middle of, of nowhere. They were refurbishing Humvees, which was the main vehicle that we used in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they had just been through a process where they had cut about 25 days off the time that it took them to refurbish one of these Humvees. And they were very proud of themselves. And I, as I talked to the whole group, I, I told them how important what they were doing was to our success in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I wanted to make sure that they saw where they fit. Well, about three days later, the, the depot commander called the office and said, these people are still on cloud nine because they had no idea how what they were doing actually fit. And they didn't realize that they were making a difference. And the more as a leader you can convey to everybody in the organization where they fit and how they're making an organization, and as a result, the organization is making a difference. It really is a huge, huge motivator. Your roles in the Army required you to have many interactions with President Bush and President Obama. Can you tell us about how you prepared for those conversations? <laughs> yeah. My interactions uh, with President Bush were much more frequent than my interactions with President Obama because as the commander in Iraq, I had a video teleconference with him about once a week. And in Iraq, I found it was very easy to get sucked down to the tactical level to talk about violence and things like that. And what I realized over time was that he might like hearing about things going on at the tactical level, but he's really focused at the strategic level. So I actually had to devote a lot of my personal time to thinking my way through what was it that he needed to make decisions about what was going on in Iraq and how I could shape, shape that message to help him do that 
And I also needed to share with him both the good and the bad because there was always something good going on at the same time there, there were always bad things going on there. So I had, I had to try to put the right balance on the message. And then when you go to these meetings in the Oval, Oval Office, you really have to think about exactly what was the message that you wanted the president to take away. And you had to remind yourself that as important as Iraq was or the army was, it wasn't the only thing the president was doing. That the president's interest is much, much broader than anything that I was doing in Iraq or with the army. And so I always had to take the president back to the last time I talked to him. Now, you'll remember it was last Friday that we talked about this, or the last time we were face-to-face was four months ago, and we talked about this. And, and I always thought setting the frame of reference was very important. So setting the frame of reference and being very thoughtful and concise about what you want to convey to the president, I think, were the, were the most important things. That's really interesting. What was the nature of those conversations? The weekly conversations were more about updates. The face-to-face discussions were more about future direction of what we were doing. Has there ever been a time where you felt like your character was really tested? Sure. Uh, I mean, a bunch of times. But one, one that really sticks out in my mind was right after I took over battalion command. That's lieutenant colonel level command, about 1,000 people. And it's the first... It's the third rung on the ladder, but it's the first major rung because if you're not successful at that level of command, you basically retire at 20 years. And I was about 37 years old, and I had just taken over command of this battalion when the the two-star general at the base put out this letter saying, "We, we have a terrible record of security violations. Pull up your socks. We must do better. Heads will roll if we don't. It came out on a Wednesday. That Friday, my communications officer was doing what communications officers usually did once a month, and that was they destroyed the expired codes. And the way they do it is they take a trash can, and they put a plastic bag in the trash can. They throw the codes to be destroyed into the, into the plastic bag, and they take it to the shredder, and it's all gone. Well, he got distracted while he was doing it, and a young soldier came in and took the trash bag and threw it in the trash. And that's okay because the dumpster outside of our headquarters never really gets emptied on time except for that Friday afternoon and so the next thing we know it's dark where you got all these jeeps out there with the headlights on and troops are tromping all over the landfill trying to find the codes of course we don't find them all so within a week after the commanding general has said pull up your socks I'm writing him a letter saying we're not doing very well in security violations this is what happened and I'm not feeling very good about that fast forward a month I'm getting ready to go off to Europe for a reconnaissance with my intelligence officer and my operations officer. Unbeknownst to me, the intelligence officer goes by the battalion headquarters and goes into the classified vault to get maps for the trip. When he leaves, he leaves the vault open. I don't know this. That's a major security violation. So I, we, fat, dumb, and happy, we go on our reconnaissance, we come back. I'm back a day. My deputy comes in and says, I need to tell you something. We had another security violation. And he tells me what happened. And I said, okay, what did you do about it? And he said, well, I got with the deputy at the higher headquarters and we squashed it. They didn't report it further. They hid it. And I immediately reached over and picked up the phone and called my boss and said, Casey here, another security violation, report to follow. And I hung up. But, but something inside me told me that if I didn't do that, 
within a week or so, everybody in that battalion would have known that when the going got tough, you couldn't count on Casey to do the right thing. He'd cover his ass. And I wrote the letter, and I was feeling less good that I wrote the first one, and I kind of thought I was done. But it all worked out. It's a really interesting story. What would what would the repercussions of something like that be if it was found out that you hit it and didn't report it, or the guys that hit it? Oh, it's like anything else. The cover-up's worse than the, than the crime, you know? <laughs> one of the things I always tell leaders today is I try to follow the sunshine rule. When something bad happens, get as much sunshine and light on it as you can because it's it's going to come out. It's going to come out anyway, so it's better that you uncover it and take appropriate action. And I always tell the leaders that bad things happen in good organizations. And the people above you, most of them aren't looking at whether the bad thing happened or not. They're looking at what you do about it. And so it's important that you you ask the hard questions early on because the hard questions are going to get asked. And the lower they get asked, the better you are. Are there any particular interactions with the president that stand out to you? <laughs> well, there's a lot with both presidents, particularly you know, President Bush during Iraq and President Obama, but I think probably the, the one that sticks in my mind the most is putting our recommendations together for the president on the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. When the president, President Obama, said in his State of the Union address, I think in 2010, that he was going to work with Congress for the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell over the coming year, he had not asked the chiefs for their military recommendations yet. And the way it is supposed to work in our country is is the military leaders aren't for or against policy. Their jobs are to provide the military implications of the policy. It's the elected civilian leaders that are held accountable to the American people. And so we knew we were going to have to go to Congress. We were already called to testify to give our military advice to Congress. We needed to make sure that the president had heard from us before we went to the Hill. And people think that generals and admirals get in trouble for disagreeing with the president. I have found that's not really the case. When they get in trouble is when they publicly say they disagree with the president without telling him. And frankly, <laughs> I don't think that's that's necessarily wrong for the president to be angry about that. So anyway, um, we had a long time before we, we said we need to see the president in the time that we did. And I found the longer that I, I have to think about something, the easier it is to get sidetracked and to think, oh, well, you know, for example, well, you know the president wants to do this. You know he's going to do it anyway. So why don't you just go along and agree with it? You know, so he, he'd feel better about that. And, I, you know, I just stuck to my guns and said, no, you owe him the implications of trying to implement this policy in an army that, that had 150,000 men and women deployed in combat around the world. And they were stretched by nine years of war. So it could have had a very destabilizing impact on the Army. And I needed to make sure he knew that, so I told him. And I also told him that it was, I believed it was a moderate level of risk. And that's our obligation, because we can do anything. It's the level of risk that you're willing to accept. And he's the one, when he makes the decision, he buys the risk. And so we did that. And they bring you all into the Oval Office, and, and you have maybe f between a minute and a minute and a half to tell the president what you think. And he went around the room, and each of the service chiefs said their piece, and that was it. 
And then we went up to the hill and we said the same thing on the hill. And they took our recommendations into account and they he made the decision. The last thing I said, though, on, in my testimony to Congress was, this is my advice, but if we're told to do this, we will do it in the same professional way that we've done every other mission we've been given for 240 years. And I worked very hard in the closing months as I was chief of staff to set the Army up for success to make sure that this went smoothly. And it went very, very smoothly. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, I do, actually. And it's, it's, it's kind of really what I start, I start and finish my course with the students here with. As I've thought about leading today in our volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world, it strikes me that it's only getting harder for leaders to do their jobs, but the premium that an effective leader can bring to an organization today is getting higher and higher. So it's harder to lead today, yet when you're an effective leader, you can have a greater impact and a greater positive impact on the organization and on the people that you lead. And that's why leadership is increasingly important today. It's a really profound message. General Casey, where can people go to find out more about you? Well, they can Google me. <laughs> but it's, it's very interesting. I mean, so I started off teaching about 50 or 60 students of semester here. We started second year MBAs. And then after Cornell combined the three schools into, into one, I started doing two sections. So now I do about 100 students of semester in the business school. I'm also signed on to do a course for the executive MBA program. And I participate in the executive education program uh, that, that Cornell runs for, for different businesses. And then this summer, and actually it's still continuing, I, I worked with eCornell to put my leadership course online. And I, I will tell you, it's a very disciplined process that, frankly, was hard work. And it really made me think even more deeply about the lessons that I can convey to people about leadership. So... Uh, lots of places and an increasingly amount of places where people can look at my stuff and think about how to become a better leader. General Casey, thank you so much for joining us on Present Value. It's an honor to be here in the studio with you and to have this conversation. Great, Mike. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team. Michael Brady, Caroline Wright, Chris Alberico, Serena Alavia, Bernardo Espinosa, James Feld, Jack Moriarty, and Jonathan Tin. I'm your host for this episode, Michael Brady. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Poddington Bear, logo by Kalechi Pomongo, and special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.